So we are in a worship series called Core, where we're exploring the core values of the Grove. And I have to admit that when Pastor Kate told me that this series was called Core, the very first thing that came to mind was a plank. And when I say plank, I don't mean a plank of wood. I mean that exercise that you do on the ground with the elbows, you know, and the, and the toes. Um, it's all about strengthening your core, apparently. Uh, if you've ever done one, you'll know it's brutal, it's intense. Um, but if you know anything about getting physically fit, as the wisdom goes, the core strength undergirds the whole fitness of the body. So perhaps it is with the worshiping body of Christ. And I'm glad to be looking at these core values together. So I suppose we could consider this our collective plank exercise. And the core value that we are looking at today is welcoming. And if you've spent any time around here at the Grove, you will know that these words are spoken regularly. You are wildly welcome here. And that wild welcome is what initially drew us to this community. I know we're not alone in that testimony. And if you're like me, perhaps you've been to a church where you've seen the sign and you've heard it spoken, you're welcome, but maybe it felt like a civilized welcome or a strings attached welcome or a conditional welcome or maybe even a cold welcome. So when I first heard the words wildly welcome, I thought, yes, because Maybe like me, you feel a little wild at times, <laughs> a little unkempt, a little inconsistent, unpredictable. So this community that seeks to welcome each other in our wildness, as we're all welcomed by the wild love of God, which can never be tamed or domesticated. And we're going to explore this core value of welcome today by looking at a text which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. I encourage you, if you have a Bible or if you'd like to, to grab the one in the pew, um, it will be up on the screen as well. It's commonly known as the parable of the ten virgins. And allow me to take just, make just a few comments about the passage um, before we read to set the scene. So this parable comes as part of a stretch of teaching that Jesus delivers to just a few of his disciples on the Mount of Olives. This comes after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and after a time that Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts. And they were leaving the temple. And just as they were leaving, Jesus happens to mention to his disciples, he points up at the temple and he says, you see this? Um, this is going, this, this is all going to go, this is going to be torn down. Ugh. <laughs> and the disciples waited until they were outside privately. And they said, Jesus, you remember that thing you said about the temple, how it's going to be destroyed? When is that going to happen? And can you tell us what the sign will be? Um, and in typical Jesus fashion, he proceeded to address their questions but maybe not answer them exactly how he, they wanted them to be answered because the disciples were asking about this, this alarming thing that Jesus had said, and Jesus wanted them to see this, the bigger picture of what's coming to pass in the history of salvation and redemption that Jesus calls the kingdom of God, the arrival of the economy and reality of God, which changes everything. And so he addressed their small questions using stories. 
um, that we call parables because stories help our imaginations grasp what can be hard to understand. So the kingdom of heaven, Jesus teaches, it's already arrived. It's here in Christ. And yet it still is going to arrive in its fullness. And when the kingdom of heaven comes and makes appearances, it will do so suddenly and unexpectedly. And these were hard things for the disciples to understand then, and they're hard for us to understand today. So let's ask the spirit of God to teach us as we read. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see the kingdom of heaven is likened to 10 virgins going out to meet a bridegroom. Now, the words virgin and bridegroom are not ones we use so casually in our day and age. So it might be helpful simply to acknowledge Jesus is painting a picture of a Jewish marriage custom where the unmarried friends of the bride and groom would lead a processional ahead of the arrival of the groom who was coming to meet the bride, which was considered the high point of the celebration. And it was common in first century Palestinian weddings for this processional to happen in the evening as it was getting dark. It was also common for the groom's arrival to be delayed. There would often be many announcements. He's coming now. And then it, it, not really, you know, you're waiting. Um, and the lamps these friends were carrying were not like our lanterns or flashlights of today, which can burn for many hours with kerosene and batteries. Most likely, historians um, tell us they were some sort of a stick wrapped in a piece of cloth that would be dipped in oil and set aflame. And these kinds of lamps probably only burned for about 15 minutes max before they would need to be redipped in oil, hence the need to have extra oil along. Um, so if you have your Bible, you could look at verse 2. What are the descriptors of these young women, young friends? How are they described? Well, we have five wise who are called wise and five who are called foolish. And these are intriguing categories, aren't they? Uh, when I was young, my parents had a particular way of talking to us. I'm one of five children, um, and my parents are long-term followers of Jesus, but they had a particular way of talking to us about our behavior that was a little bit different than what was commonly heard. So rather than telling us, before we're, say, going to go into a store, into someone's home, rather than saying, be good, <clears throat> uh, because what does that mean? <laughs> they would invite us to be wise. And it's a subtle difference, but 
profound because to be wise, it involves more complexity than be good. And foolishness is more nuanced than you've been bad. <laughs> and all I know is I didn't really know what it meant as, as a child, but it formed me in such a way that as I became a parent, I started using this language. So five virgins are called wise and five are called foolish. And what are the signs of their wisdom and foolishness? Well, if you look at verses three and four, it tells us the wise ones were prepared. They considered there would be a wait. They knew they would need to bring extra oil to keep their lamps burning because they didn't know exactly how long it would take the bridegroom to arrive. And on the other hand, the foolish ones came along but failed to prepare for this very probable scenario. So let's think a little bit more about wisdom. The, the books of wisdom given to us in our scriptures, and we have books of wisdom, um, namely the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Um, these show us that wisdom is not about static, easy categories or right or wrong answers. They're about situational fittingness to a particular time, context, and circumstance. One of my favorite examples of this is in Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And then verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Do you answer, answer the fool or don't answer the fool according to? And of course, the answer is it depends. It depends. That's wisdom. So wisdom's not necessarily about finding that right thing to do that applies at all times. I saw a meme recently that said something like this. Me as a kid, don't tell me what to do. Me as an adult, can someone please tell me exactly what to do step by step in this situation? <laughs> And it rings true, right? Because life gets complex and confusing and unpredictable and God can seem to delay and we can be left wondering what we're doing, waiting in the dark, and we don't know what to do. So returning to the text, we see that wise means, similar to what the books of old tell us, being ready, being prepared, and being prepared for what? And the answer is being prepared to welcome the bridegroom in a way that is fitting whenever and however he arrives. Now, some of us are going to hear the word readiness and we're going to immediately become anxious trying to prepare for every possible scenario. And something that's fascinating that we see in the text is that readiness does not mean anxious hypervigilance. If you look at verse five, they fell asleep. They all fell asleep, the foolish and the wise. The wise ones were settled enough to know that they could rest. And we sang about rest earlier because when it was time, they would be able to welcome the groom in a fitting way. So whatever readiness means, we see that it is a way of being prepared that allows for rest. And maybe some of us need to hear that today.
So what can we learn from the readiness of these wise disciples who were prepared to welcome the bridegroom for our own practice of being a welcoming community? Well, perhaps to illumine this, we can look at another parable in the same body of teaching just a handful of verses later. If you remember, Jesus is addressing the disciples' questions by offering them multiple stories to awaken their imaginations because the arrival of the kingdom of God will be and is beyond their imagination. So he's saying, it's like this. Oh, it's like this. It's like this. And giving them lots of, lots of stories. So just a few verses later, Jesus tells another parable about a king who addressed his righteous servants and welcomed them into his kingdom for whenever they fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited those in prison and cared for the least in society they unknowingly welcomed the king himself. It was in those encounters with the sick, the incarcerated, the hungry, the unhoused, those who were suffering, that the king arrived unexpectedly. And so this is not tame, anticipated welcome, where your friends tell you what time they're coming over for dinner. This is wild welcome. But let's get honest and practical here and admit that whenever we are welcoming the stranger, especially those who are suffering, and many of us, while we're suffering ourselves too, there's unpredictability. There's wildness. It's easier said than done. It's easier to look at it on a sign, right? We can declare ourselves a welcoming people, and then the rubber meets the road. What about when we are faced with welcoming, offering wild welcome to someone who demands something of you ongoingly, who has complex needs, material, emotional, psychological, who has been hurt or traumatized, who has low access to resources, someone who disagrees with you politically, someone whose life is messy and complicated, as are we all, someone who's offended you, someone who's hurt you, someone who just makes you uncomfortable and rubs you the wrong way, someone whose lifestyle choices offend you. What does a posture of readiness look like in those situations? Wisdom is needed especially when the path is not clear, the situation is complex, and the arrival is unexpected. And what about when a moment of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God arrives that asks something deeper of us, something more, something sacrificial that may appear to be foolishness in the eyes of the world? In April 1963, a series of civil rights protests occurred in Birmingham, Alabama, challenging the segregation of Birmingham's public accommodations. And pro-segregation white residents joined with local police to respond to the protests with violence and legal suppression. And on April 10th, when a state judge made all anti-segregation protest activity illegal, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the Reverend Ra Ralph Abernathy chose to lead a march in defiance of the injunction, and they were arrested on April 12th because what they were doing was considered illegal 
Dr. King spent eight days in jail before being released on bail, and during that time, he wrote his famed letter of Birmingham jail. And this letter was a response to a public statement of concern and caution issued by his brothers, those who were supposed to be his brothers. Eight white religious leaders of the South had published a public declaration that Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy's actions were unwise and untimely. And if you've never read the letter or haven't done so recently, I encourage us all to do so as we commemorate the life of Dr. King. It's available readily on the internet. So let me ask this, when the moment for joining with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God came to Birmingham in 1963, who was ready? When the opportunity came to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned, stand with the oppressed and resist the forces of evil, who was ready with lamp and extra oil? Who was wise? And on the flip side, who was perhaps there in some way, yet unprepared? And who found a way to scoot out and miss the opportunity to truly honor the presence of Christ and the kingdom of God? So what to make of the foolish ones, the ones called foolish in this parable? Well, at first blush, it might seem a little bit harsh to call them fat. I mean, so they didn't bring any extra oil. Why are we being so hard on them? And couldn't the ones with the extra oil have shared when asked? Or don't we believe in generosity and sharing? Well, if you remember what I mentioned earlier, the lamps these friends carried would only be able to burn about 15 minutes before they would need to be redipped in oil. Everyone knew that it would probably take a long, be a long wait into the night for the bridegroom. So some, one way to understand what was going on with these um, virgins who are called foolish to illuminate with the situation we might be more likely to experience today. So say a hypothetical family is packing for a trip and a hypothetical mother reminds her children to pack their toothbrushes. <clears throat> when the family arrives at the destination, one of the children says to mom, mom, where's my toothbrush? And mom says, well, didn't you pack it? And the child says, no, because you always do. And mom says, well, we're going on an overnight trip. Clearly, you need your toothbrush. I did remind you, it's your responsibility. And the child says, I know, but you always do it. And I just thought you would. Maybe relatable. (laughs) Another example is the group project in school. (laughs) Okay. We all know there's that member or two. They don't pull their weight because they know that someone will step up to do it. And if they just stay quiet long enough, their proximity to those who will do the work will pay off for them. Also relatable? I don't know which category you put yourself in there. (laughs) I'm not going to ask for hands. So it's important to state that welcoming doesn't mean being without boundaries. If you look at verses 8 to 10, the wise ones who had extra oil said to the others, sorry, we can't share this oil because then we will all miss the bridegroom and dishonor this gathering. 
we both know you should have brought more oil. And now you need to go get your own oil. And friends, there's times when pseudo-disciples or immature disciples need to be left to the wilderness and to the dark to fumble their way through. Rest assured, there is grace there. There is always grace there. Now you might be thinking, okay, this all sounds well and good, but the problem is, Stephanie, in the quiet of my heart right now, I must admit that I lack wisdom. I don't always know what to do when I encounter a situation of welcome that requires wisdom. I'm awkward, or I'm really shy, or I get anxious. I let myself down all the time. I don't welcome others as warmly as I wish I could. I miss opportunities. I've been hurt in the past. I'm risk averse, genuinely been hurt. I'm so overwhelmed with life. I could welcome someone initially, but they overstay their welcome. I lose stamina for the ongoing needs, ongoing demands of being welcoming. Or even perhaps in your heart of hearts, some are thinking, maybe I would have been one of those people Dr. King addressed in his letter. Because if I'd lived at that time, I may have agreed his actions were unwise and untimely. How we want to see ourselves as the wise ones in this parable. But perhaps like me, you fear you see yourself in the foolish ones too. Perhaps you're thinking, sometimes I'm thoughtless and unprepared. Sometimes I let others do the work. And I might even admit there are times when I want to be proximate to radical faithfulness in a way that looks good but keeps me safe. And perhaps because of this, the warnings of verses 10 to 12, where the foolish friends are locked out of the wedding feast, disturb you or cause you fear. And first, let me say emphatically that this warning is not a cosmic fear-mongering trick meant to inspire anxious and performative good works out of fear that God will lock you out of the wedding feast. Friends, the entire story of scripture presents revelation of God, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is not a warning for those of us who acknowledge our foolishness and shortcomings, our need for wisdom, our need for a savior who eagerly confess as we did and do every week and who acknowledge our desperate need for God to give us wisdom. This warning is for those who consider themselves wise and have no regard for true discipleship, even when given every opportunity. So yes, the warning is there. And this is a word of hope for us. In his letter to the churches, James, who was a brother of Jesus, had this encouragement to the people of God who were asking some of these same questions. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Church, we certainly do lack wisdom when it comes to radical welcome, even while it is our core value. Our core exercise today, our plank then, is simply this. Let's ask God. Let's ask God together always, trusting that God will give us wisdom individually, as families, as households, as a community, to be able to welcome each other and the stranger as God so radically welcomes us.
What's more, the Apostle Paul declares in his letter to the Corinthian church that wisdom is not some special knowledge measured by human standards. When we ask for wisdom, we don't receive some extraordinary insight like we were, just, we were talking about before, about the books of old. We receive a person. Wisdom is a person. And that person is Christ crucified. The apparent foolishness of God that shames the apparent wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So friends, let's not boast in being the amazing, radically welcoming church. Let's boast in the Lord who radically welcomes all of us with indescribable grace. There is a lesser known speech delivered by Dr. King in which he presented a notion called creative maladjustment, which is the idea that in a world that would like us to become comfortable with systems of unwelcome, systems of violence and oppression, and come to view them as normal, we must never adjust ourselves. Quoting King, we must never adjust ourselves to racial discrimination and racial segregation. We must never adjust ourselves to religious bigotry. We must never adjust ourselves to economic conditions that take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. We must never adjust ourselves to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. Friends, as we rest in the glorious gift of our union with Christ, who is our wisdom, let's never stop asking God for wisdom, trusting that we will receive a growing ability to be prepared for the arrival of the bridegroom who we may meet in the neighbor sitting next to us in the pew, on the street corner, in our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, wherever we find ourselves. And may we never become adjusted to the ways of unwelcome in our world. But may we always be attentive to how the Spirit of God is forming us toward the radical welcome of God which we have received through Christ and will lead us someday into the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb.